Hi, everyone. You are listening to Radio Cherry Bomb, and I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. I'm the founder and editor of Cherry Bomb Magazine. Each week, I talk to the most interesting culinary folks around. Today, I'm chatting with Michelle Tam, who some of you know as Nom Nom Paleo. Michelle was working as a hospital pharmacist on the night shift when she had a food and fitness revelation, and Nom Nom Paleo, the blog, was born. The Nom Nom Paleo universe has grown to include three best-selling cookbooks, including the latest Nom Nom Paleo Let's Go, Simple Feasts, and Healthy Eats, an app, and a line of spices. After 12 years on the night shift, Michelle was able to quit her job and focus on Nom Nom Paleo. She doesn't think of herself as an entrepreneur, though, but she has clearly built something incredible that has helped lots of folks lead healthier lives. Stay tuned for my chat with Michelle in just a minute. I'm so excited to talk to Michelle because she and I will be hanging out in person very soon at the Graduate Hotel in Palo Alto for a special networking event. It's taking place Thursday, March 2nd from 5 to 7.30 p.m. at President's Terrace, which is Graduate Palo Alto's rooftop restaurant and bar. The hotel is located in downtown Palo Alto, close to the Stanford University campus. Come and meet other folks in the Bomb Squad and from the local culinary scene and enjoy snacks and sips from President's Terrace. Then we'll have some talks and a panel discussion with great food folk from the area, including Michelle Tam and Avery Ruzica of Manresa Bread. Tickets are $30 and include all food, drinks, and a copy of our magazine. Head to cherrybomb.com to snag your ticket, and we can't wait to see you. We are also hosting networking events at the Graduate Hotel in Chapel Hill on February 9th, and the Graduate Hotel in Tucson on February 23rd. Our Chapel Hill event is sold out, but we still have a few tickets for our Tucson event, so don't delay. If you are not familiar with Graduate Hotels, it's a collection of 33 handcrafted hotels in college towns across the U.S. and U.K. Each one has a unique design inspired by its hometown, and their restaurants and lobbies are perfect gathering places for visitors, students, and locals. I'm so excited to check out Graduate Palo Alto. Some of you might not know this, but I used to work for Yahoo Food and would visit Silicon Valley a lot, and cool hotels were in short supply back then. But no longer. Graduate Palo Alto is a restored historic hotel with lots of the cool touches Graduate is known for. In this case, like hand-painted redwood wallpaper and custom art inspired by the university. For more information on our event, visit cherrybomb.com. And for more information on Graduate Hotels, visit graduatehotels.com. Now, let's check in with today's guest. Michelle Tam, welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. I am delighted to talk to you. It's been such a long time since we saw each other. We figured out, what was it, 2017? Yeah, and then there was that dark void of the pandemic, which I think we're still in, where time just stopped. And I literally, like, how how could that have been three years? <laughs> like. Time absolutely stopped. I feel you on this end. And you have kids. I think it's even more acute when you have kids because three years in the life of a child is such a big percentage of their life. Definitely. But I do, I am thankful that they were teenagers when this happened because everybody that had a toddler during pandemic, I can't even imagine trying to do work. And then you're still in charge of all the stuff at home and your kids and then your husband's at home. It just, it sounded nightmarish from all my friends. So with the teens, I could just, I was like, leave me alone. Mom has to work. You have to help out with cooking for yourself. So I think 
I, I was luckier than a lot of people in that respect. So the boys are cooking for themselves? If it was up to them, they would just throw like nuggets into the air fryer and not eat a vegetable. And so they, they can. Oh, and then my younger son can fry eggs. So that's kind of a good thing. So they can survive. But I don't know that they're thriving if they were to cook for themselves. <laughs> so they're not about to take over Nom Nom Paleo. No. And I talk about it all the time. I'm like, you know what? I feel like retiring. Do you guys want to take over? They're like, no. And my older son is like, no, I like gluten. This is never happening. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> and you also did have a baby of sorts during the pandemic because you put out a cookbook almost yeah. exactly a year ago. We actually worked on it during pandemic. And because my husband and I do all the things, like he does all the photography and the layout and the cartoons and all the artistic stuff. And he used to do that at night and on the weekends. He was still working his regular job, but we had a lot more time to work on things just because he's like, oh, I, we have like a hour break between meetings. Let's go and shoot this recipe right now. And I'd be like, okay. And so we actually got a lot done. And I definitely think the pandemic and being trapped at home and being away from friends and family really did shape with the content because I think initially I had different ideas of what recipes would get in there and we already had this whole outline. But then when we actually started filming things and with everything happening in 2020 and with all the racial reckoning and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to change what we're going to put in this book. And I just wanted it to be a love letter to growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, surrounded by all these immigrant communities, and just kind of celebrating the food I love to eat growing up. We are going to talk more about the book, Nom Nom Paleo. Let's go. I always love your titles. And you mentioned your husband, that's Henry Fong, right? Mm -hmm. your, your life partner, your husband, your collaborator. He has like this whole kind of artistic vision for our books and everyone's like oh artistic vision it's like we have like a crazy technicolor comic book vibe I think to everything so it's not like this kind of frou-frou fancy aesthetic but it's like a fun cartoony vibe and we should note that Henry is a lawyer <laughs> it's not like you married an illustrator and book designer exactly but he is someone that I think has always wanted to be an artist and he has been doing art ever since he was a child, being raised by two Chinese immigrant parents. It's like, art is not what you're going to do with the rest of your life. You have to make a living. And so he ended up going to law school, but he's always loved drawing. And when I met him in college, he actually had a cartoon in the Daily Californian because we went to UC Berkeley. And so he's always been cartooning and drawing. And so I think he, he likes that his day job takes care of that side of the brain. And then he's able to do all this artistic stuff when he helps me out with Nom Nom Paleo. Well, you've both had such interesting journeys. We've got so much to cover in this interview. But you did say that the new book, which is your third New York Times bestseller, congratulations, is a bit of a love letter to growing up in San Francisco in the Bay Area. You have one of the best bios on your website. So anybody who's got their own website should take a look at Michelle's because it is sort of the gold standard of bios. But you mentioned something very sweet in there. You said that your mom was a great cook and that you were her little shadow in the kitchen. And I would love to know more about your mom. What was she cooking and why were you so intrigued? My mom was, I think she's like a lot of immigrant moms who kind of do everything. Like they worked and at the same time they were able to come home and then make a magnificent like six course Cantonese meal every dinner time. 
which I don't do at all. In fact, I almost do the opposite. People think I love cooking, but I don't love cooking. I love eating. So I always try to make, like, that. that's the whole thing with our cookbooks and our, our blog and our app is I just try to make it as easy as possible to cook. But I feel like my mom kind of did the opposite. And maybe it's because she was working at a job that she didn't particularly love. She was in a foreign country, away from her family, living with my in-laws. Like, I feel like there was a lot of stuff that she didn't really deal with. And, and part of how she probably dealt with that was cooking these elaborate meals. So she was able to kind of take charge of something. And this was something that she was really great at. And everyone acknowledged her for it. But when I say I was her shadow, I really was just her shadow because she wouldn't really let me help her. She would let me do terrible things like peeling raw shrimp and washing the vegetables. I'd be like, this isn't fun. If this is cooking, I don't want to do it. But I would also be amazed at how she would be able to just make these like literally like six course meals like at dinner time plus the soup and everything would be hot at the table like when we all sat down to eat and so I was just I would always just follow her and I and I knew if I just pestered her enough she would give me a sample of something because Chinese parents aren't always the most effusive with words about how they feel and so I knew when she would kind of slip me like a piece of barbecue pork like oh mommy loves me you did go to Berkeley to study food, nutrition, and science. I never thought that I was going to have a career in food, per se, but I've always loved food, and I've always loved eating, and I've always been described. There's a Cantonese phrase called what that is waisik. That means that you're kind of, you live to eat, and that's just how I've, I just, I will, I will drive really far because I've heard there's an amazing taco truck, like in this parking lot in like San Jose. Or if I travel anywhere, I just want to find the really delicious spots. Whereas Henry's like, oh, well, let's go check out this gallery or whatever. I'm like, okay. But I don't know why you'd want to do that. And I actually thought about going into research into like food science and creating Frankenfoods and maybe getting a PhD in that, but not certainly not doing what I do now. So you study food, nutrition, and science at Berkeley. You meet your husband while you're there, which is so sweet. You guys have been together forever. Next, you go on to get a doctorate in clinical pharmacy. Do I have that right? Yep. I am a registered drug dealer or a pharmacist. <laughs> what led to that? I think it was just practicality. I was like, I had taken all these kind of pre-med courses, but I didn't want to go to medical school because I didn't want to touch naked people. I didn't want to go to optometry school because I didn't want to stick my hands in people's eyes. I didn't want to be a dentist. I didn't want to be a nurse. There were all these things. I was like, what can I be? And I was like, oh, I could be a pharmacist. So that's what I did. And I was like, you know, there's lots of jobs available. I mean, I was just being very practical. And I was like, I think there's lots of flexibility. Like you could work at all hours. You could either work like community pharmacy or you could work in a hospital. So you could work any time of the day. But I could still make a good living and go eat at great places. So I think that was why I did that. It wasn't like, oh, I love studying drugs. It was like, ah, uh, this is a good job. You wound up working the night shift in a hospital for 12 years. Yeah. That must have been tough. Yeah. You know, I always, I was always, when I was interested in nutrition and food science, I actually wanted to be some sort of, I think, nutrition, like, educator. And then when I went to pharmacy school, I was like, oh, maybe I'll do some sort of drug information. And I thought I was going to work at a drug company. But then when I did a residency at a drug company, I was like, wow, 
some of the stuff that they say is true about how drug companies really are kind of a profit-driven machine. And so that's when I decided I'd work in a hospital setting. And I worked in the ICU for a while, but my schedule was so crazy, I couldn't make restaurant reservations. And so the night position came up and I was like, oh, if I work nights, I'll work seven nights on and then I'll have seven nights off. And I'll be able to know for the rest of my life when I can make reservations. And so that's why I started working nights. And I did that for 12 years. And I think I, I worked nights longer than I should have because I discovered paleo and I felt so much better that I continued working longer than I think I should. And then Nom Nom Paleo kind of blew up and I was like, oh, I can quit my job. And so that's what I did. But how did it affect you? I mean, even though you had seven days on, seven days off, it still must have impacted your relationships, your schedule, everything. Yeah, working nights is hard. And I think when you're young, it's not as bad because you can bounce back because you are literally getting jet lag every other week and you're just having to, and it's terrible. You're going against your circadian rhythms. And so I I definitely think I did a lot of damage to myself working nights for as long as I did, but it also enabled me to kind of discover something that made me feel better. And it also gave me the time to kind of develop my blog and kind of do all this stuff. If I could go back and change things, I wouldn't change it, but I don't actually recommend people work nights if they don't have to. And I know that it's not possible and, and you know, first responders and hospital workers, you have to work nights but it's not good for you. God bless the folks who work yeah. at night, all our, all our restaurant friends, all the frontline yes. workers. You must have had a huge amount of empathy for all the frontline workers during the pandemic. Oh, for sure. I felt guilty. I was like, here I am working from home, working for myself, and I am not on the front lines. And I still have tons of friends who work in hospitals. And it was really hard. I felt, I felt really guilty. You mentioned that while you were working the night shift, Nom Nom Paleo started to take shape. Now, one thing that people might not realize is your husband was really the first one to go on this food and fitness journey. Tell us a little bit about that. We only have two kids. So when our second son was about two years old, we're like, oh, we can finally start exercising and eating right again. Because at this time, we're like, oh, my gosh, we're like in our mid-30s and we just feel slobby. So we started doing exercise DVDs at home because we couldn't leave the house because we had two small children. And he was like, oh, I'm going to research. And he's really good at like researching like all the things to do. And he was also a blogger because he was he actually had a daddy blog years ago. And so he decided to do kind of a fitness blog to kind of chronicle his journey and also to keep himself accountable. And so he had this blog called Fit Bomb and he decided to do P90X which are these exercise DVDs that was advertised on like late night television. And he would write about his workouts, but also to keep it interesting, he did research on the people in the videos. And apparently one of the other people in these DVDs is this guy named Mark Sisson. And when he Googled like what he was doing now, he has this thing called Mark's Daily Apple and he was talking about this primal way of eating. And he's like, hmm, this is really interesting. So then Henry started looking into that. And he's like, oh, this is a really interesting way of eating. It's kind of eating the way your ancestors do, eating like lots of vegetables and healthy animal proteins and maybe avoiding grains, which is kind of a newer phenomenon. 
And I remember he told me about this and I was like, wow, that sounds crazy. Like I'm the one that has a nutrition and food science major and had it in the 90s. So that's when it was all about whole grains, no fat, no saturated fat. But that's what I was taught was healthy. I was like, this way of eating that you're describing sounds like you're going to get a heart attack and die. So, you know, if you want to do it, just make sure your insurance premiums are paid up and we're good. And so he tried it and like immediately he's like, I have so much energy. And then he got a six pack immediately and he started doing CrossFit. And at the same time, I started doing an exercise DVD. It was like this girl version called like Shaleen Extreme. And I really, I really actually like them still. And Shout out to Shaleen Extreme. Yeah. You're supposed to take a picture the first day and like 90 days after. And he was like, wow, my 90 day picture looks great. How about yours? And I looked at mine. I was like, wow, mine looks worse than when I started. And I was like, I don't know. Maybe there's something to what Henry's talking about. But Henry knows that he can't tell me what to do. I have to pretend like I came up with this decision myself. And so I think just one day I was like, nope, I'm going to do this. And it happened to be we were on a cruise in Alaska. And I think we were in a buffet line. And I saw someone who was in line like on oxygen. And on a scooter, and I was like, maybe I should just try this and see what happens. And I felt so much better. And I think anybody who finds something that you feel so much better doing, you become a super annoying evangelist for it. And so I started telling people about this. And then finally, my sister pulled me aside one day and was like, Michelle, I love you, but you're being super annoying about this whole paleo thing. And I'm like, okay. And so Henry's like, you know what you should do is you should just start a blog. Just put it up on the internet. And then if people want to find it, they can find it. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. And so that's how Nominon Paleo started. Because a Tumblr blog where I didn't think anyone would ever read it. And I swore all the time. And, and it totally changed. Because initially I was just kind of writing about what you could eat when going out. If you're a paleo or if you're going to work, what kind of stuff you would pack. So it wasn't even really a recipe blog. But then I realized, oh, I have to actually probably create paleo recipes because I'm modifying everything to make it paleo. I may as well create my own stuff. And that's just kind of how it started. And you came up with such a great name. How did Nom Nom Paleo come about? That was that had no forethought whatsoever. That literally was Henry... I think right before me going to work at night, his, he, like, I think he was just like setting up something on Tumblr and he's like, oh, if you had a blog, what would you call it? And I just said, oh, Nom Nom Paleo, because Nom Nom at the time, back in 2011, 2012, was not as annoying as it is now. Like now it's like a verboten phrase, just like moist. They're like, oh, Nom Nom is like the worst. I'm like, no, I understand. And so then I was like, Nom Nom Paleo. And so... Now, like, you know, 10, 10, 11 years later, I'm like, oh, Nom Nom Paleo is kind of limiting, especially because I'm not as, I'm definitely not as dogmatic as I used to. In fact, my whole thing, everyone's like, everyone's always like, what is paleo? I'm like, my definition of paleo is way more lax and chill than anybody else's version. I really think that people should just pay attention to how food makes them feel and then eat the ones that make you feel great. And then when you do decide to eat ones that don't make you feel great, just make sure it's worth it. I definitely, during the pandemic, because I was fortunate enough to work from home and spent a lot of time with myself thinking and working, I really saw how food impacts my mood, my emotions, 
my well-being and in a way that I just hadn't been able to in the previous decades. And I felt like I learned a lot about myself and my relationship to food. Nom Nom Paleo has delighted so many people, and you cover so many different ways that people eat, whether it's Whole30 or gluten-free or traditional paleo. And I think people just need to take a look at your Instagram account to get a really good snapshot of what you're all about, because the food just looks so delicious that's on your on your Instagram. And I forgot, you make dessert. You love dessert. And, you you know, it doesn't matter how you eat right now or what you want to eat. I feel like you've got a lot of solutions and great ideas for people. Thank you. But the whole dessert thing, I think, was a pandemic thing. I think once I was home, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start making more desserts because I feel like it. And so our latest cookbook actually has a lot more dessert recipes than the previous two, just because it was kind of on a dessert kick. Well, let's talk about this book. I've read this about you and Henry as well, that you decided to lean a little bit more into your identities as, as Asian Americans mm -hmm. in this book, more so than previous ones. Why was that? I think because of all of the violence that was happening against Asians in the last two, three years, I was just like, I'm tired of hiding who I was. And I think I've always, I think, especially with the generation that my parents were and that the age that I am, because I'm not, like, I'm 48. I'm definitely, like, Zoomers this, these days, like, my kids, are they're just so open-minded and they just know so much more than I feel like I ever knew. But I know that when I was raised, it was just to kind of fit in and assimilate and not make any waves, try to be as white adjacent as possible. I think I just was like, no, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm proud to be an American, even though a lot of people just automatically assume from looking at me that you're a foreigner. And I'm just gonna celebrate, I'm just gonna celebrate who I am. Now, your previous two books, I felt like you always just very comfortably navigated multiple cuisines and cultures. We all know now that you just love food in general. Yes. So you were you were celebrating a lot of different things and just putting out there the way you like to eat. Yes. So what's what's different in this book? I think it really there're foods that I just missed eating because we were trapped at home. Like a lot of them were foods that my mom used to cook for like special celebrations like we have spatchcock roast duck i recreated chinese egg tarts because i miss them like i have pot stickers in there so there's a lot of recipes that i just was truly comfort food for me but at the same time growing up in the bay area there's a lot of food that is comfort food to me but like true comfort food is the stuff that my mom would cook for me and that's that's a lot of the stuff in the book what did your mom think of of the third book I think that they're proud, but they've never kind of voiced like, oh, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned this in this book, or I never thought that you felt this way, or like there's none of that kind of stuff. So I think she's proud, but I've also kind of learned from my relationship with my mom how I want to change things with my two sons. And so I feel like, you know, you just learn and grow. How did you feel personally, Michelle, putting this side of yourself out there? I just wanted to. And Henry and I, because we kind of do things the way we want to do it, and our publisher is really good about letting us do a lot of what we want to do. And I was like, I don't care that this might not sell as much because it's not kind of appealing to just 
everybody, but I know there's still, I know that there's a lot of people like me that this would appeal to. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this the way I want to. So you've had a whole year of this book out in the wild. What's the most popular recipe? I think the pot stickers are really popular. The paleo sandwich bread is really popular. Tell us what paleo sandwich bread is. It is a grain-free bread that you can bake and slice up and make sandwiches with. How does one make a grain-free bread? Oh, that one took so much work. Okay, so there's like cassava flour and like cashew nut butter and just a lot of work. And that one was one that the, my, my friend who's a recipe tester who's not paleo, so that's also why I love that she's my recipe tester. She's like a sourdough baker, and so she totally helped me make sure it totally worked and seemed like bread. Do you enjoy the recipe development part? I do, if it doesn't take me 20 times to make it. If I hit it within like the three to five tries, because I always have to redo it and test it, and then we shoot it, so there's a lot of times that it gets tested. But if it's something that takes longer than that, then I just get really mad and I just want to give up. But there are certain ones that I don't. Like, I think the pot stickers, I resisted for a long time. But when I finally did it, I was like, oh, I guess it was worth all the work. Walk us through the pot stickers. The pot stickers, I just, because I love pot stickers and I love dumplings. And I was like, there's just no way you can make a grain-free wrapper. Like, you can, you know, wrap it in, like, cabbage or something. But it's not going to be a pot sticker. But Henry... I had a scallion pancake recipe, and Henry's like, I bet you can turn this into a pot sticker dough. And I was like, I don't think so. I think it'll just be gummy. But then one of my readers said that she tried it, and then because she said it, I was like, oh, then I will try it. And then I got it. And what's the filling? The filling is just, it's actually very traditional. It's like pork and cabbage, but instead of soy sauce, like I use coconut aminos. I use a lot more fish sauce than is traditional for Cantonese cooking. Coconut aminos is a soy sauce replacement, but it doesn't have the saltiness and umami that I like. So I always combine the coconut aminos with fish sauce, but it's got the same seasonings. But I don't put minced ginger because the minced ginger has an enzyme that breaks down pork and makes it really mushy. And so a lot of people are like, oh, my mom used to, makes it this way, but the meat is really soft. I'm like, that's because the ginger breaks down. And if you actually like it, then you can keep it. But I don't personally enjoy that texture. Maybe the potstickers is the answer to this question. But which recipe is the most personal to you in the new book? Probably the potstickers. But I think also the egg tart is probably another really personal one. Just because I remember just going... My mom actually never made egg tarts at home. That's totally like a dim sum dish. But I just remember going to dim sum with my family. Maybe once a month on Sundays, we'd drive up to San Francisco and buy all these groceries and then eat dim sum. And that just brings back all these memories. We'll be right back. I have a little Cherry Bomb housekeeping. Tickets are now on sale for Cherry Bomb's 2023 Jubilee Conference taking place Saturday, April 15th at Center 415 in Manhattan. This will be our 10th in-person Jubilee, and we can't wait to see you. Jubilee is always a beautiful day of connection and community. And Jubilee also happens to be the largest gathering of women in and around the food space in the U.S., so don't miss out. For tickets and more information, visit cherrybomb.com. What else? We launched a brand new podcast. It's called She's My Cherry Pie, and it's hosted by baker and author Jesse Sheehan, and it drops every Saturday morning. 
Each week, Jesse talks to a world-class baker and does a deep dive into one of their signature baked goods. I love this show, and I think you will too. The first few episodes of She's My Cherry Pie are live, so check out Jesse's chats with Claudia Fleming, Joy the Baker, and Joanne Chang. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find the transcripts on cherrybomb.com. Enjoy a slice of our show or go for the whole pie. Now, back to our show. Let's talk about you as a business person because you are fully a successful entrepreneur now. How did that part of you develop? I feel like I'm one of the worst business people ever. I remember one of my friends who is actually a true entrepreneur. She's asking me something. She's like, well, what's the ROI on this? And I'm like, what's an ROI? And so I, I definitely don't know that I run things well from a business perspective, but I think my ethos for all things Nom Nom Paleo is that it has to be, whatever I'm creating has to be useful or delightful. And if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. And I'm in a really like lucky position because Henry still has his job and I have, I still have my pharmacy license. And so I have all of these privilege and backup so I can do this. But I do think being able to really create things the way we've wanted to has also been why we're successful because we have this very clear image of how we want to present our materials to people. Like I, as I told you before, I don't love cooking, but I love eating. And as a reluctant cook, I always need like step-by-step pictures for everything. I need little cartoon characters cheering me on. And so that, those are all things that we've incorporated into our app and our books and on the blog. So you mentioned the app. How's the app going? Thousands of people have downloaded the app. I looked at that. Oh, um, it's good. App creation is not something I recommend for anybody. So if you're like, oh, I want to create an app, don't do it because it's super expensive. And anytime there's an iOS update, it breaks the app. And then all these Android users will say, how come you don't have an Android app yet? And you'll be like, it's because it costs so much money to do, and people don't want to pay more than 99 cents for an app. <laughs> so don't do it. What does your app cost? $5.99, and it's okay. forever, and I add free recipes every week. I always talk about how I love our app. We went to Webby's for it, and we we're really proud of it. But it's so much work to maintain, and it just causes so much agita. And it's you and Henry. Do you have other members of the Nom Nom Paleo team? I have a part-time worker who's really amazing that helps out mostly with Facebook because I'm not a, a big fan of Facebook. And you only have so much time. And then she helps with newsletters and other kind of admin stuff. But content creation is all me and Henry. In terms of how you monetize everything, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly you've got three cookbooks. Mm-hmm. You've got the five ninety nine uh, app. You've got the spices. You've mm-hmm. got you offer those on your website, and those are really fun. You put so many free recipes out, like even on your website, and just it's incredible the amount of free content you put out there. So thank you for all of that. But how do you monetize all that? So ad revenue on the blog. So this is actually okay. something that I didn't even, I think years ago when we started the blog, the ad networks were terrible. And at the time, I was afraid that they'd have a McDonald's ad on my site. And it was like paleo and it was really hardcore back then. And so I was like, oh, I'm not going to do any ads. But then I was invited to a food blogger retreat. And these were like these top food bloggers. 
And they were just talking about how they just made all this money on their blogs. And I was like, really? Because I kind of make it with like affiliate stuff, like back when Amazon affiliates paid money and like the books and I had like the app and all these kind of piecemeal ways. Like, no, the main way we make money is ads on our site. And I was like, what? I was like, I tried that once. And, and then I think I had Google AdSense, which made me maybe 500 a year. And they're like, no, like you should join. And I guess if you're a food blogger, the two main ones that most people are in, if they have enough traffic, are AdThrive and Mediavine. And some of them were like, I don't have a huge presence on social media. If you actually look them up, they maybe have a respectable amount, like maybe 20,000 or something or less. But they get like maybe 10 million page views a month on their blog. So they, and so they were showing me their little dashboards of how much money they made. And like these women on these blogs are making millions of dollars a year. And I was like, I don't have that traffic, but I'm going to throw the ads on my site, which I know people are like, the ads are so annoying. I can't stand them. But that is how I'm able to provide free content because I'm being paid in this way. I can pay for our servers and all the things that make running a web business successful. And so all of my friends who are bloggers and who I was like, you need to get enough traffic to get on an ad network because that is how you make money. I mean, until it all crashes, which it could. So blogs are not dead from your perspective. They are not dead, but it is hard. I lucked out because I started so long ago and because you've been in on the internet for as long as you have, like you have all these backlinks and you have good Google juice. So even if you weren't optimizing it properly, because mine is old, like I lucked out, but there are so many people now who are just starting out and they know exactly how to search for keywords and SEO, like all these things I don't, I still don't really understand, but they are making a killing on ads. It's, it's amazing. And a lot of people like, oh, those are so annoying to read those super long stories before blog posts. And I'm like, yeah, the, those are actually few and far between. The people who are really successful have really useful content and they work really hard at it. And a lot of them are women and moms. And I'm like, props to them for figuring out how to run a business at home and being able to do things on their own terms. Do you do many brand partnerships? No, I don't. I think it's one of those things where I'm always like, oh, I would love to do a brand partnership with so-and-so. But then if I ever get approached by someone, I'm always like, I don't want to have them tell me what to do. And I don't want to have to send my, my stuff to get vetted by them. Like whenever I share stuff, it really is just very organically. I'm like, oh, here we are, whatever. Or this is something I really love. And so I've done a few in the past and But I can probably count it on one hand. And I know it's stupid and I'm leaving money on the table. And I have no issues with anybody choosing to do that. But I think this is so inspiring, Michelle, for folks who are out there who want to be content creators but maybe don't have the relationships, but they have a great idea, to see that, that you can do it on your own like you have. Yeah, you do have to work super hard. Like, I right, feel I'm saying, like... Not saying it's easy. No, no. And I'm, and, but I think I really, because I was doing it while I was working nights, I just think I worked so hard. And at this age now, I'm just like, I'm really ready to retire sometime. I mean, like, it's not something that's way off in the distance. I'm like, oh, what is my escape plan? Because I am thinking of one. Because when it is not fun anymore... 
I'm going to just parachute out. You've put so much great content out there. I would imagine that, like you said, a lot of the back catalog continues to perform well. Yeah, it definitely needs to be updated. And that's something, too, is like you are like you're always you always have to create new content. But then the older Mm -hmm. stuff, you do have to reshoot stuff and add information that's helpful. But even that, it's a lot to keep up. And so there are many times when I'm like, I really do think I'm just going to do the things I want to do because life is short. More power to you. The more you can do that, I say, fantastic. Thank you for answering those questions. I think it's super helpful for folks out there. Let's talk about Silicon Valley and uh, Palo Alto. You and I are going to get to hang out in person in just a few weeks, which I'm thrilled about. I'm so excited. It has been a long time since we've seen each other in person. We're doing this really fun event at the Graduate Hotel in Palo Alto. I haven't been to Palo Alto in so long. And it was never considered a food scene. And I think that's changed a little bit. I definitely think it is changing. What I think the Bay Area has always had is that they've had a lot of really great ethnic food, like Indian food in Sunnyvale is amazing. Vietnamese food in San Jose is really amazing. Mexican food up and down the whole peninsula is amazing. But in terms of the upscale stuff that people were still heading up to San Francisco and then like Berkeley and Oakland to eat that stuff. But I think more and more of those types of restaurants are coming down here. But then I think also all of those kind of mom and pops, like with the second generation, if their kids have taken over, have just made them amazing. I always felt like the area got so overshadowed by San Francisco and Oakland. But now, I don't know. The scene, the scene seems to be evolving a lot. We'll have to get some of your favorites. Maybe we can share them on. I don't know if you have anything off the top of your head that you absolutely love, but we can maybe get some. I think I shared some on the Instagram. I mean, I think Zareen's is a really great Pakistani place that is always super crowded. Oh, Ethel's Fancy is really great. It's like a nice place to go, but it's nice and casual because they'll play Tame Impala or something in the background, and it's not white tablecloths. But it is somewhere you, you could impress your parents by taking them. What kind of food do they have? It is the chef, I think, trained at the French Laundry. But his, his mom, I think, is Japanese-American from Hawaii. So it's got Japanese-y, Californian, but like with the laid-back vibe. One thing you definitely have out there is entrepreneurs. And we're going to have <laughs> a lot of our favorite entrepreneurs at the event at the Graduate Hotel. And even though you kind of refer to yourself as, as an accidental entrepreneur, Michelle, nonetheless, you are an entrepreneur and you've built something amazing. Thank you. I will take that. But I, my imposter syndrome was like, ah. I can tell on the, you know, I'm so, I have to say, I'm so surprised. I know you and I don't know each other that well. But when I look at what you've built, I look at it with just amazement and admiration. And you are so modest when you oh. talk about it. Thank you. I don't know. I think because it's such a solo or it's an experience where just it's Henry and I in our house creating stuff and just kind of throwing it out into the ether that I forget that other people are impacted by the stuff we create. So I don't know. That could be that could be it. Okay, Michelle, we're not letting you off the hook just yet. We have a little speed round for you. I would love to know what one of your favorite books on food is. Could be a cookbook, could be a memoir. I still love salt. I mean, I think everyone still is, but I think salt, fat, acid, heat is just one of my favorites because I just think it just taught such fundamental stuff. But it was such an aha moment for me. And I always I always refer to it. What's your favorite food movie? 
You know, I love Big Night. I love that. The kind of old school checkered red tablecloth food that they talked about. And then also kind of the fancy food that the brother makes. That's that's a really awesome food movie. Favorite kitchen tool? I don't know. I have so many gadgets I like and it changes. Probably my meat thermometer. I think my Thermapen 1. Like, I'm not one of those people that can just touch meat and know exactly what the temperature is. I, I do stab it, and it makes me feel better when it is in the range I want. What was your favorite childhood food? Probably wontons. And I think my mom made wontons more often than any other type of dumpling because it's still time-consuming, but it's an easier, like, dumpling to make. What is your snack food of choice? Ugh, I'm trying to eat more protein because I'm old. I eat a lot of eggs. I know it's not sexy, but I do end up eating a lot of eggs. You snack on eggs. It keeps me. When I force myself to eat eggs as the snack, then I'm not mindlessly eating. But, like, my true favorite snack is probably dark chocolate. I do mm. snack on that. But I don't consider that a snack. I just consider that a supplement. Are you not a snacker? I'm not a snacker. I'm someone that once I decide to do something, I'm very good at following that. But it takes me a really long time to kind of adopt something. But once I do, I'm like, oh, I'm all in. What's your footwear of choice in the kitchen? Barefoot? Barefoot. Do you wear shoes? Chinese Chinese family. No shoes in the house. So if you drop a knife, so be it. Yeah, exactly. Those toes got to go. This might be a tough one. But is there any motto or mantra that you live by? (laughs) You know, this was kind of a joke. But I used to say, I think in Rogue One, like I'm not a Star Wars fan at all. Henry is a huge Star Wars nerd and my two sons are as well. And so I'll watch all the Star Wars movies. And so I watched Rogue One and that's, I was like, wow, this is actually a great movie. And one of the characters, their mantra is, I am one with the force and the force is with you. And so I I say it anytime I have to do some public speaking or something. And I know it's so hokey, but that is now my mantra. (laughs) Well, I am a Star Wars nerd, and I, am, I really believe in the Force, so yeah. I, I totally hear you on that one. Okay, if you had to be stuck on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be and why? It would have to be someone that could cook for me, but who would it be? I don't know. That's a really hard one. I don't know. But it would also have to be someone that I'd want to hang out with. I don't know, Ina. I think I would kidnap her and put her on the island with me. I know. We, we all want to be on the island of Ina. Michelle, yay. So much fun to talk to you. And I can't wait. I think the event's almost sold out. But Oh, that's fantastic. Um, but that's great. But it's going to be such a fun group of people. And I can't wait to see you in person. And this was such a blast to talk to you and to catch up. So thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. All right. Michelle, you're the bomb. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Michelle Tam of Nom Nom Paleo for joining me today. Don't forget, our event at the Graduate Hotel in Palo Alto is taking place March 2nd. Tickets are available at cherrybomb.com or click on the link in our show notes. If you have any Silicon Valley dining recos for me, DM me on Instagram at cherrybomb. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Our theme song is by the band Cha La La. This episode was recorded at City Vox Studios in Manhattan. Catherine Baker is our producer and Jenna Sadu is our associate producer. Thanks for listening. You're the bomb. <laughs>